Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It's 9.20 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It's the 4th of October, boo, 2022. This is episode 625 of Bitcoin. And let's start this whole thing off with a at DC underscore Drano tweet says, when everything went to hell in Florida after Hurricane Ian, or Ian, I didn't see a convoy of Priuses, windmills, social justice warriors coming to save the day. No, 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 no. I saw diesel trucks, combustion generators, heavy tractors, fuel tankers, and a whole lot of bearded good old boys putting some of that toxic masculinity to work, saving lives and rebuilding society. God bless the true backbone of America, the hardworking men and women of the middle class. <laughs> totally agree. I don't know anything about DC Drano. He could be somebody, you're, somebody's out there probably going, oh my God, I can't believe you're a DC Drano. I don't give a shit what else he's ever said. Don't care. Don't care. All I have to do is look at just this one thing because he's absolutely freaking correct. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's absolutely correct. Now, here's the thing. You will catch me on this show time and time again bitching about America, but it's not really the country that I'm bitching about. It's the federal and state governments, okay? It's not the people, just like everybody who's like, oh, the Russians are bad. No, Vladimir Putin's bad. But, you know, the little, little grandma sweeping off her porch waiting for her grandkids to come home from, you know, school. You know, it's, she, she's not my enemy. You know, all the, you know, the brown people in the sandy regions of the world. Eh, you know what they want to do? They want to fall in love. They want to have babies. They want to have a good meal. That's what they want to do. Maybe they want to go out to a, you know, a club and go dancing if I don't, you know, if I know they do that shit in, you know, Dubai and places like that. So the restrictions of the religion, the Muslim religion are, you know, come on, you know, it's not like everybody over there is just following the, you know, following the rules of their religion. They go dancing. They, I've, dr- I've drank alcohol with full-blown Muslims. Okay. Might call him a bad Muslim because of it. I don't know. But I mean, I've gone out drinking with people who are of the Muslim faith. All right. So <clears throat> they want to have a good time. They want to be human. They want to experience life. They you know want to smile every once in a while for God's sakes. And it's because of the institutionalized class of miscreants that somehow or another through our apathy have been allowed to reign supreme for decades and decades and decades. I have a problem with America at the top level, not at the bottom level, not with these guys that are driving the fuel tankers, not these guys that are shipping in generators. No, 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 no. not you, dude, not you, chick. Uh, uh-uh. you guys are okay. It's, top end of the food chain that drives me absolutely bonkers, but we've got other things to talk about. 
And, well, honestly, we're going to talk about the same thing. In fact, DC versus Michael Saylor, tax fraud, or another political attack against Bitcoin. Let's find out from Dr. Reist Simjowski and Kenneth Minsinger. Yes, I'm aware that I butchered the shit out of your names. That's part of the shtick. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I know how to pronounce all these names. I just don't. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> If you're in the Bitcoin space, you know Michael Saylor. Regardless of your personal opinion of the individual, the companies he's founded, run, or sold, or his perspective on monetary policy, many topics revolving around Saylor have become commonplace in academic, personal, and political discussions. In August of 2022, via Attorney General Carl Racine, the District of Columbia and Tributum LLC, please note, the irony of Tributum, the co-plaintiff, translating to a tax imposed on citizens to fund the cost of war during ancient Rome hasn't gone unnoticed, nor has the fact that DC is actually a municipal corporation and they've jointly filed a lawsuit against Saylor and MicroStrategy claiming, among other items, that defendant. Michael J. Saylor has unlawfully deprived the District of Columbia of tens of millions of dollars in tax revenue. Much of this complaint, lawsuit, whatever, revolves around the False Claims Act, FCA, which readers can learn about via the federal statute here, and he gives a link, and the District of Columbia statute here if they are so inclined. So what is the False Claim Act? The District of Columbia's False Claim Act is modeled after the federal statute. In a nutshell, the federal statute originally enacted in 1863 was in response to defense contractor fraud during the American Civil War. The law was recently updated and now allows third parties like private companies like Tribulum or whatever to bring forth lawsuits in which they believe individuals, organizations, etc. have defrauded the U.S. government and then share in any judgment settled in U.S. dollars as they sue individuals with the support and legal backing of the United States government. I'm going to pause here to further nutshell that shit. It means that if I, as a private corporation, can find you guilty of something you did, then I can file suit on behalf of the governmental organization. It is a rampant Karen running around making sure everybody's doors are not painted any other color but brown. That's what this is. It's a Karen pointing her finger and saying, he did bad, I'm going to sue him on behalf of you guys. And even though you guys are going to be the ones that bring all the lawyers and do all the court shit, because I pointed my finger and yelled, thief, I'm going to get to share in whatever it is you win. What a fucked up system that is. Sorry, let's continue. Historically, lawsuits under state and federal false claim statutes have been utilized to recover overpayment, to contractors or a payment where work wasn't performed. Notable cases include a $1 billion settlement obtained against Bank of America and Countrywide Financial for submitting false claims by making loans insured by the Federal Housing Administration to borrowers they knew to be unqualified in 2009. Bank of America again in 2014 for a record-breaking $16.65 billion and a $22 million settlement in 2021 against the University of Miami for allegedly building Medicare for unnecessary tests. 
More recently, several states and the District of Columbia have amended their False Claims Act to allow for the recovery of underpayment of taxes. This change has essentially deputized civilians, i.e. Karens, and nearly any attorney practicing law in the United States into an IRS tax auditor, think red flag laws, but with cash incentives to report your neighbor or colleagues. Please note that violators are liable for damages plus a penalty, which is linked to inflation. The crux of the complaint filed revolves around where Saylor resided for 183 days per year, more than 50% of the time in a calendar year for the past few years. If Saylor resided in DC for more than 183 days per year in a calendar year, then he is technically a resident of the jurisdiction and as such would be required to file taxes in that jurisdiction. The filed document can be seen in its entirety here and a link is given. The complaint hinges upon a whistleblower suggesting that Saylor fraudulently claimed to be a resident of a lower tax jurisdiction, his home in Florida. Moreover, MicroStrategy was added to those being sued with a claim that, quote, the company conspired with defendant Saylor to facilitate his tax avoidance scheme, politicization. I can't pronounce that word right now. I'm not going to try again. Some may take offense to the, oh God, I got to do it, politicization of how the suit was announced. Specifically, a tweet by Racine stating, new, today we're suing Michael Saylor, a billionaire tech executive who has lived in the district for more than a decade, but has never paid any DC income taxes for tax fraud, end quote. Even those with little to no legal expertise can see the challenge with how the tweet was composed, specifically with the statement and implication of fact versus claim. For example, a more appropriate and less politically charged announcement might have read something along the lines of, quote, new, today we're suing Michael Saylor, a tech executive whom we claim has lived in the district for more than a decade and if our lawsuit is successful, would be required to pay back taxes, end quote. The differences are subtle, but again, many may perceive the claim against Saylor and MicroStrategy as political versus factual. The courts will attempt to determine if fraud occurred. In a similar vein, in 2021, Racine filed an antitrust suit against Amazon, which a U.S. court dismissed. Next, the paradox of the District of Columbia, specifically the Attorney General utilizing collaborating or utilizing uh, with a tributum LLC listed as the realtor in section nine of the party's disclosure, where the legal complaint claims that Tributum LLC is a Wyoming limited liability company. One only needs to do a simple Google search to have the firm's address come up in Virginia, specifically 32 North Augusta uh, Street, Suite 6, Staunton, Virginia, 24401. I don't mind doxing you motherfuckers for this, for this shit. Alexander Skaggs of the Financial Times identified this interesting aspect of the events, noting that Tributum's LLC's physical address is the same as the Wyoming registered agent, a company that essentially sets up shell companies and which promises complete anonymity to its clients. Again, it is not the intention of the authors to suggest that any criminal or unethical conduct has occurred in reference to Tributum LLC or to suggest the fact that the whistleblower who filed the report to this company is in any way incorrect, inaccurate, or unfounded. 
Rather, it's the intention to point out that the underpinnings and origin of the lawsuit leave unanswered questions without much investigation. An investigation may come out in court should these events result in a trial. Personally, we genuinely have no idea if Sailor or MicroStrategy conspired in order to avoid taxes in the D.C. area over the past decade, and in truth, neither does anyone else on the planet, including Racine. That is what the U.S. courts are for, not the court of Twitter. The fact that the Attorney General screenshotted a tweet from Sailor in 2012 uh, appears to be more inclined to gaslight the tech executive and MicroStrategy versus making a truly legal argument. However, this is simply perception or optics and is not necessarily reality. Again, that is what the courts are for. An attorney stating publicly that someone has lived in the district for more than a decade but never paid D.C. any income taxes for tax fraud jumps to conclusions that Twitter trolls get called out for jumping to daily, let alone an elected official with a you know degree in law. Let us jump to some conclusions at this point ourselves, since everyone else has, and we don't want to miss out on the fun of baseless claims posted to Twitter. An attorney general who has recently filed lawsuits against Amazon for antitrust, again, dismissed by a U.S. court, and against Michael Saylor, one of the most vocal Bitcoin advocates on earth, personally, and MicroStrategy, one of the most pro-Bitcoin public companies on earth, professionally, may have more to do with an attempt to silence or tarnish Bitcoin proponents versus an attempt to collect potentially tardy taxes plus penalties and interest. Again, time will tell. Perhaps the Attorney General has a true legal argument and this case will settle out of court or go to trial. Who knows for sure, but what we can say is that the judgments should come that uh, what we can say is that the judgments should come out in court and not on Twitter. As researchers, we have hunches and opinions. However, slander is a slippery slope in public forums as are claims of wrongdoing. We encourage the Bitcoin community to pay particular attention to how this case plays out before casting judgments on any individual or organization, including, but not limited to, Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy, Racine, Washington, D.C., and or Tributum, LLC. So there you go. That's sort of kind of... That's sort of what's going on. That's where we're at right now. I personally don't expect this case to go freaking anywhere because I don't think that Michael Saylor would have been that dumb as to live over 183 days in the District of Columbia. I mean, if you're doing something, look, here's, this is just a fact. Nine-tenths of the tax code is written to get out of the tenth of the tax code that tells you what you have to pay. Who do you think wrote the nine-tenths of the tax code that does that? Well, them rich motherfuckers. Sailor's probably, you know, I don't know if Sailor actually got into helping draft tax legislation, but if he didn't, a, a bunch of his friends did. You know, all the other billionaires that actually, you know, don't want to go fishing and take walks in the forest and somehow or another get a, you know, a rise from s standing under fluorescent lights in a fucked up office all day. I don't know. Doesn't matter to me. <clears throat> but... Those loopholes exist. And if they do exist, then they should be used. Close the fucking loophole and stop pointing fingers at people and saying that you're evading taxes. If you really think that, then why aren't you closing the loopholes? Why are you going after why are you going after people? All you gotta do is close the loop. You gotta revise the tax code. But that's never gonna happen now, is it? Because those loopholes are there for your little buddies, right? So why can't Sailor use it? And if he is using it, 
in order to pay less taxes, I guarantee you he's not stupid enough to stay over 183 days in the, in the, in the D.C. area. He's just not dumb. You can say what you want. You, I doubt, seriously, if you're listening to this podcast that you hate Bitcoin, but even if you do hate Bitcoin, you got to admit, man, Sailor's done all right for himself. He's not this dumb. I think it's just grandstanding. I think Racine wants a higher office. And I think he's grandstanding on public forums to get that office. So look at me, look at, look what I'm brave. I can go after anybody I want, even though that the Amazon case got dis, roundly dismissed in the United States court system, whatever. I wouldn't worry about this, but the authors suggest that we keep track of it. I tend to agree. Now, the dangerous implications of central bank digital currencies, i.e. CBDCs, Bitcoin Magazine, Natalie Smolensky and Dan Held are writing. CBDCs are digital cash. Unlike traditional physical cash, which can be transacted anonymously, digital cash is fully programmable. This means that CBDCs enable central banks to have direct insight into the identities of transacting parties and can block or censor any transaction. Central banks argue that they need this power in order to combat money laundering, fraud, terrorist financing, and other criminal activities. But, as we'll see below, the ability of governments to meaningfully combat financial crimes using existing, uh, ad, sorry, uh, existing anti-money laundering and know-your-customer laws has proven woefully inadequate at best, while effectively eliminating financial privacy for billions of people. The ability to block and censor transactions also implies its opposite, the ability to require or incentivize transactions. A CBDC could be programmed to only be spendable at certain retailers or service providers at certain times by certain people. The government could maintain lists of preferred providers to encourage spending with certain companies over others and discourage providers to punish spending with others. In other words, with a CBDC, cash effectively becomes a state-issued token like a food stamp that can only be spent under predefined conditions. Means testing could be built into every transaction, but censoring, discouraging, and incentivizing transactions are not the only powers available to central banks with programmable cash. Banks can also disincentivize saving, like, you know, holding your digital cash, by capping cash balances as the Bahamas have already done for their CBDC, or by imposing penalty interest rates on balances over a certain amount. This can be used to prevent consumers from converting too much of their M1 or M2 bank balances, credit money issued to them by commercial banks into cash, that would be the M0. After all, if too many people rush to demand cash, hard money, at once, commercial banks will be deprived of funding and may dramatically reduce their lending if they can't find other sources of capital. Central banks understandably wish to prevent these credit crunches, which often result in economic recessions or depressions. However, their policy interventions also deprive people of access to the M0 currency, the hardest and safest form of money under a fiat currency regime leaving billions of people, especially the poorest, without recourse in the event of a monetary crisis. Of course, negative interest rates can be imposed by central banks on all cash holdings, not only balances over a certain amount. While the objective of imposing negative interest rates is, again, to prevent recessions by stimulating near-term consumer spending, 
This objective is achieved at the cost of accelerating the destruction of private wealth. We can take the world's economic situation as an example. Central banks intervened during the COVID-19 pandemic to prevent recession by monetizing growing levels of sovereign debt, which flooded markets with fiat money. This has resulted in more money chasing after fewer assets, a reliable recipe for inflation. The world is therefore seeing the highest sustained global rates of inflation in 20 years, with some countries experiencing rates much higher than the global average. Inflation already incentivizes spending, but people understanding that their money is worth more today than it will be tomorrow. By implementing negative interest rates, central banks further erode the value of people's savings, creating a perverse incentive for them to spend their already dwindling resources even faster. This vicious cycle does not end in economic prosperity, but in a collapse of the currency. While penalty and generalized negative interest rates are both methods central banks can use to incrementally confiscate money from individuals and private organization, these are not the only methods available to them. Once, CBDC, once CBDCs are implemented, there is nothing technically or legally preventing central banks from imposing direct haircuts on or repossessions of anyone's cash holdings anywhere in the world. Central banks could directly confiscate private digital cash to pay down their sovereign debt to discourage the use of digital cash, to decrease the money supply, or for any other reason. Although this possibility has not been openly discussed, it is built into the political and technical architectures of CBDCs. Finally, central banks can programmatically require tax payments from every CBDC transaction. Some economists have argued that this measure is necessary to recover tax revenue that is sometimes avoided when physical cash is used, and then rather optimistically note that governments can take, could take advantage of the recovered tax revenues to lower effective tax rates. However, there is no indication that revenue-strapped governments already incentivized to harvest private wealth would take any measures to lower taxes. Instead, CBDCs will most likely be used to generate additional tax revenue for the state at onerous cost to individuals. Imagine, with mandatory taxation, on every CBDC transaction, you would be taxed for giving your neighbor $20 or giving your children an allowance or for every item you sell at a yard sale. A person paying their friend $50 to change a tire or $100 to look after their home while they are away would be taxed for those activities as well. This informal economy is not only a necessary mode of, inter, uh, sorry, of intimate interpersonal relating, but a lifeblood <clears throat> for millions of people who rely on it to survive day to day. It is morally unfathomable to imagine a homeless person selling flowers on the street being taxed for every transaction. So in summary, retail CBDCs are programmable cash. Programmable cash gives central banks direct relationships with consumers, Direct relationships between central banks and consumers enable central banks to, one, surveil all financial transactions, two, flag, block, or reverse any transaction at any time, three, determine how much cash anyone can hold and transact with, four, determine what products and services cash can be used to buy and by whom, five, directly implement monetary policy like negative interest rates at the level of private cash holdings, six, confiscate privately held cash, and seven, 
enforce tax collection on every cash transaction, no matter the size. Jesus, could you imagine the hellscape world that we would be in if we allow CBDCs to come into, to come into birth, to flourish, to enrich itself? The only, the only answer here, ladies and gentlemen, is to not allow this shit to happen. And how to do that? Don't use it. Refuse. Refuse to use it. You just, that should be a bumper sticker. I refuse to use. It's like, don't do drugs, boys and girls. When it comes to CBDCs, refuse to use. Refuse to use. Sorry, I, if that sounded like a little weird, the way that I came back in, it's because I had to take like a 10-minute break because my downstairs neighbor started up his car with, you know, that's got like cherry bombs and fucking glass packs and stuff on it. The, the, his truck sounds pretty badass, but I don't, I didn't want to do the rest of this for the 10 minutes that he's letting his truck warm up. So he just left so we can continue Russia to allow international trade in Bitcoin crypto for any industry as per a report. The ongoing saga of what the hell Russia is going to do continues from Sean Amick out of Bitcoin Magazine, the Ministry of Finance of the Russian Federation plans to let any industry in the country to accept Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies for international trade without restriction as per a report from local media outlet TASS. Ivan Chebiskov, director of the Financial Policy Department for the Ministry, explained in a recent interview, quote, we are going to allow international settlements in cryptocurrencies for any industries without restrictions, end quote. We read that one more time. We are going to allow international settlements in cryptocurrencies for any industries without restrictions. That is the director of the financial policy department for the ministry. Okay, well, continuing. However, though the ministry intends to offer non-restrictive flows for the acceptance of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, there seems to be a difference of opinion coming from the Bank of Russia. Quote, the central bank is in favor of creating a fully-fledged infrastructure for the circulation of digital currencies in Russia. Okay. Thus, while the Ministry of Finance prefers a local approach to the regulation of digital assets, the central bank is pursuing a broader range of regulatory action. Chebyshkov detailed that the Ministry of Finance has two primary functions as it relates to the regulation of digital assets for international payments. Quote, we believe that we need local crypto infrastructure, first of all, to protect the interests of citizens, said Chebyshkov. <clears throat> Quote, because now those who trade their digital currencies on crypto exchanges are limited, secondly, to control when digital currency is used legally and when not, Chebyshkov continued. Last month, the central bank and the Ministry of Finance agreed on a draft bill that would establish a regulatory framework for the acceptance of digital assets as payment. This decision follows an ongoing debate between the two institutions, which has seen multiple draft bills and even led the president uh, led to President Vladimir Putin expressing his concern that the country should not miss an opportunity to use the country's advantage in the ecosystem. And he's talking about their massive energy reserves. Moreover, the central bank will reportedly begin testing a digital ruble sometime in April, 2023. The exchange of the digital ruble for foreign currencies 
and the opening of digital wallets to non-residents is expected to take place in 2024. I don't know what Russia is going to do. It just, just reminds me of India. If any of you guys were around 2016, 2017, Hell, even into 2018, India just flip-flopped all around on what they were going to do about Bitcoin. I don't know. I still, to this day, don't know if they have their shit together. And I'm hoping that Russia will get their collective shit together and make a damn decision instead of going back and forth. But somebody has made a decision, at least in Lugano. Cointelegraph David Attlee tells us that McDonald's has started to accept Bitcoin and Tether in the Swiss town of Lugano. Multinational fast food chain McDonald's started to accept Bitcoin as a payment method in the populated city of Lugano, 63,000 in population. Lugano is the Italian-speaking region of Switzerland, which is becoming a hotspot for crypto adoption in Western Europe. A one-minute video of ordering food on McDonald's digital kiosk and then paying for it at the regular register with the help of a mobile app was uploaded on Twitter by Bitcoin Magazine on October the 3rd. The Tether USDT logo could be spotted next to the Bitcoin symbol on the credit cash machine, which is not surprising as in March 2022, the city of Lugano announced that it would accept Bitcoin Tether and the LVGA token as a legal tender. On March the 3rd, 2022, the city signed a Memorandum of Understanding with Tether Operations Limited, launching the so-called Plan B. According to this plan, Tether has created two funds. The first one is for 100 million Swiss francs, and that's an investment pool for crypto startups. And the second is 3 million Swiss francs, attempting to encourage the adoption of crypto for shops and businesses across the city. In addition to allowing Lugano residents to pay their taxes using crypto, the project will extend payments to parking tickets, public services, and tuition fees for students. More than 200 shops and businesses in the area are also expected to accept crypto payments for goods and services. Speaking to Cointelegraph in June, Paulo Arduino, chief technology officer of Tether and Bitfinex, claimed that Plan B is going great announcing a two-week educational activity on blockchain and cryptocurrencies in the city. In September of 2021, El Salvador became the first country in the world to allow using Bitcoin as a legal tender. Since that time, McDonald's has been accepting Bitcoin at all its 19 outlets in the country. Okay, that's great. It is, it's great. Don't eat McDonald's, boys and girls, because it will poison your liver. But, you know, what are you going to do? If you've got children, they're going to want McDonald's unless you never show them a McDonald's ever and that's your business. But yeah, stay away from McDonald's. But that aside, I'm kind of shocked a little bit. I, you know, it's clearly a testing region. Lugano is only 63,000. That's not a huge town, but it is a town and it has 63,000 people in it. And, or actually, well, the whole region has 63,000 and according to this, if this is true, McDonald's has 19 outlets. Is that right? They have 19? Hold on. I'm looking, looking. I can't find it again. I'm pretty sure that it said 19 outlets. Um, oh, yeah. Since that time, McDonald's has been accepting Bitcoin at all its 19 outlets in the country. Oh, El Salvador. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. You caught it before I caught it. 
Hey, I haven't even eaten yet. I'm still in, I'm still in my morning fasting mode. Give me a break. Give me a break. Okay. Uh, Let's see, is there anything to say about this? Oh yeah, I wanted to, to ask myself this question and to you, dear listener. If El Salvador is getting pummeled like the Dickens over their accepting of Bitcoin as legal tender in the country, is the IMF, World Bank, and UN, and Bank of England gonna start pointing their fingers at Lugano and laughing? Is there going to be a response from World Bank on this situation? Yeah, is if Lugano starts accept has a lot of businesses accepting it and a major worldwide corporation such as McDonald's is accepting it, is the IMF and Christine Lagarde gonna get pissed? I don't know. I mean, I they are certainly angry at El Salvador. That response is probably because the country made it legal tender. But if Lugano makes such an announcement, what what happens? Because Lugano is sort of Kind of like a place that all these people like to go. The IMF, World Bank, and Bank of International Settlements head honchos. They they like that portion of Switzerland. I just, you know, so whatever. But we have numbers to run. Now we got breaking news from CNBC. Elon Musk changes course and proposes going through with Twitter deal at original price, says sources. Uh, well, Elon Musk has reversed course and is again proposing to buy Twitter for $54.20 a share, according to sources familiar with the matter. Twitter shares jumped 15% on Tuesday after Bloomberg first reported that Tesla's CEO plans to go forth with his deal to acquire the company. The stock was halted after the report. A few weeks after Musk agreed to the deal earlier this year, valuing Twitter at $44 billion, he quickly changed course and tried to back out of the agreement. Twitter sued Musk to force him to go through with the purchase. The two sides were scheduled to go to trial in Delaware Chancery Court on October the 17th. Uh, let's see, uh, do, do, do. Twitter alleged that Musk was looking for a reason to back out of the deal when the company's shares dropped along a broader decline in the overall market. If the deal closes and Musk ends up owning Twitter, it's possible that all litigation would end. I don't know why there'd be any litigation left, ladies and gentlemen. But meanwhile, Tesla shares have dropped about $9 per share on the news of Musk's proposed uh, proposal crossed, but are still up more than 2% on the day. Now there's a, they have a, a couple other things in this article, but it's more about the history of the battle uh, between Musk and, uh, and Twitter. Honestly, guys, the way, you know, CNBC is framing this, making Musk look bad. Musk, I don't believe, I, I don't, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of the guy, but I don't think for a second that he was trying to back out of the deal. Like he, you know, made the proposal when he was hammered. You know, and once all the strippers were gone and the blow, you know, wore off and, and the alcohol poisoning left his body, that he decided, looked, looked in the mirror and decided that he had made a horrible mistake. I don't believe that for a second. I think what he was saying is like, look, I want to buy the company. I got a problem with your Twitter bots. I need to see all the evidence that you have. I like he's he, actually what he said was I can figure this shit out for myself you need to give me access to all of your data. This is part of a discovery process when you're going to buy a company. You wanna see their bank accounts, you can see that. 
you can see all you can see all kinds of shit when when you have a credible offer on the table and the company in question says that they agree that it's a credible offer, then information in, in massive amounts is exchanged to make sure that this deal's going to go through. He wasn't asking for something that they couldn't deliver. He was asking for what he already knew they could deliver and they fucking refused to do it. And he was like going, okay, well then you have not met my needs for discovery. I don't want to have any part of this because I don't know what I'm buying. Now, the entire media went against Musk and said that he had apparently gotten drunk one night and decided that it was a bad deal the day after. No, 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 that's not what happened. And remember, I don't even like the guy. I don't like Elon Musk, but he was well within his rights because he had proposed a credible deal and the shareholders voted that it was a credible deal even against all the gnashing of teeth and whining and moaning at the corporate levels of Twitter itself, the shareholders, the shareholders are the ones that actually get to make the decision in toto. And they decided that it was a credible buy opportunity. The shareholders should actually be suing Twitter. That's, those are the people that made this mess come to fruition. It wasn't Musk. And it wasn't the shareholders of Twitter. It was the corporate C-suite, as we call it. The C-suite executives made this mess themselves. And if anybody should be suing anyone, it's Twitter shareholders suing the C-suite executives of Twitter. That's what should have happened. But we live in clown world, so it didn't. Speaking of clown world, everything is up today on the markets. West Texas Intermediate blowing through glass ceilings. 3.32% of the upside at $86.41 a barrel. Brent North Sea recapturing 90 bucks a barrel. 3.15% of the upside gives uh, Brent North Sea $91.66 per barrel. Natural gas doing what it always does. It's completely reversed course today. 5.5% of the upside, $6.82 per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline, ready for the shocker? 6% of the upside, $2.66 a gallon. Ladies and gentlemen, Biden's strategic oil reserves tapping is coming to an end. What he's done, I honestly, is a kind of a crime against humanity, but all the shiny metal rocks flying to Mars and beyond. Gold up 1.72%, back over 1700, back over 1720, back over $1,730 at $1,731.30. Silver up 2.31%, platinum up 3.74, copper is up 2.3, and palladium reaching for Pluto 4.43% to the upside. All your agricultural futures are up, which means higher food costs, ladies and gentlemen, except bread, because wheat is down a half point. Biggest winner of the day is sugar, 2.64% to the upside. All your markets are up. Dow up 2.38%. That's a huge move. S&P up 2.5%. That's a huge move. NASDAQ up 27 Massive move. And holy shit, the S&P mini is up three and a half points. Mmm, that's some good monetary policy right there. Let's print some more.
Bitcoin, $20,001.33. That is after 1.42 million BTC changed hands in the last 24 hours. 5.09 BTC is the average transaction value, median transaction value 0.024 BTC or just under 500 bucks. Block times, mercilessly low, eight minutes and 31 seconds. We have 0.067 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and just over 11 BTC taken in fees on a per, on a 24 hour period. With a 2.06% rise in hash rate, we're up to 248.83 exahashes per second. Your shitcoin indicator even gained. Dogecoin, 6.6 United States pennies. That means the rest of the shitcoin market is tagging. Tagging along for the ride. 7,990 transactions waiting on four blocks to clear. We have a $381.4 billion market cap which is 3.35% of gold's entire market cap. You can now buy 11.6 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,168,904.67 of, and 4,976.92 of those are in the Lightning Network, valued at just under $100 million, being run over 17,242 nodes, sporting 85,156 payment channels, and Tor capacity percentage has dropped again. We are now at 69.0% of what's going on uh, with Lightning Network over Tor. Uh, That's gonna do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the boost you can use. Boostograms, I got them. Letter 6173 with the Striper Boost, 7,777 sats. The best BTC is P2P and KYC free. Agreed. PTAR with the Striper Boost, 7,777 sats. Is there a USD BTC price where you retire from everything and disappear? No. No, there's not, honestly. <laughs> I I don't want to disappear. I'm... I, I want people to leave me alone. And so with that, I would definitely, I would definitely buy a farm. Absolutely. And I would move out into the country, but me not bringing you Bitcoin and not bloody likely. Um, me not going like what, you know, I actually, there's a price that I would see Bitcoin at that I would go to more conferences. I'd go to Nashville. I did go hang out at like all the conferences that I could. If I had just oodles of money, you'd actually see more of me because I'd be able to afford to go to Riga. I would love to go to Riga. I I would love to go to the Bitcoin conferences out there. I wanted to go to Bluffton, Georgia. And it wasn't, it really wasn't the money thing. It was a timing issue. Also happened to fall on the weekend of my son's birthday. I'm glad I'm, I'm much... I'm very happy that I was here instead of Bluffton, Georgia, because I'm not going to miss my son's birthday. Just not going to happen. Uh, but I would, you'd actually see more of me. So there's the answer to that one. Uh, user, lots of numbers, which is my friend Bubba. Thank, thankfully, he put his damn avatar up on, on so I can see his avatar. Now I know it's Bubba. That 10 sats was 10,000. This is for the fuck the politicians fund. And he gives me 5,000 sats. Thank you, Bubba. I appreciate it. Fatoshi, 5,000 sats. 
Can't tell you how many times I've been driving and listening to the show, literally shouting, cheering, laughing, and applauding. LFG. Yeah. Yeah. Damn Skippy. Fatoshi. Let's fucking go. Good point about pay and replace. Makes sense in a remittance context too. Fatoshi again with the big fat 5,000 Satoshi boostagram. Jim LaHaye. 200 sats. I would love for you to do a show about the risks to Bitcoin and how to protect against them. Also, it is possible, is it possible to do a 51% attack on the network? And if so, how can we stop it? I've read the block size wars, but I would bet that there are more large scale attacks to come in the future. Much love, go Padres. Woohoo! 200 sats there. 69 sats boost specifically for shark duck photo. Also rhymes with state cuck. <laughs> F-dub seven. Thank you. I appreciate that. Getting back to Jim Leahy at uh, his question about 51% attacks. I'm not worried. That doesn't mean that larger attacks aren't coming. They are, but I, I don't think it's going to be against the network. It's cheaper to buy out Greenpeace for the piddly million dollars and, and, and get magazine advertising because it's much easier to program the zombies that we have all over the world. We, we made an army of zombies with COVID-19. That's I honestly tin, tin foil hat fully squarely perched on the top of my head. It was to build an army of people that will believe anything a news organization or a governmental institution tells them to believe. That was the whole fucking point. Okay, now I'm going to take the tinfoil hat off, get back to reality. Um, not that I don't believe what I just said, but, you know, we, we've got some other stuff to do. Um, he was talking about reading the block size wars and bet there are more large scale attacks come in the future. Yeah, again, let's get to the, let's just talk a little bit about a 51% attack. That's kind of a misnomer. You need a lot more power than just 51% of the network, okay? You need like 75. Some people have posited that you need 85. With, and I just read it, with 248 exahashes per second, do you have any idea how to even calculate that cost? And it's not just the cost. Let's say a government... I don't know, the United States government decides, well, they can't go invade every country where every mining machine is, so they confiscate everything in the United States and its power supply for those machines, okay? Well, you don't have 51%. You've got 20? I can't remember the number of what's going on in the United States, but I think it's around 22%. So now just to get to 51, you need a shit ton more. So where are you going to get the machines without invading countries to go get their mining machines. That's the optics of that are, are it's not going to work in favor of anybody. Government won't do that. So then you say, well, they'll just buy the machines from who, who's going to make that many machines to get up to 80% of the network. Now let's say, Oh, and, and one other thing, let's say they did, let's say they were able to manufacture all like a whole shit ton of S 19s. And the United States says, now we got to plug them in to what? What grid in the United States is going to be able to take that kind of shit? Now, I mean, you got to build that out. That's not something you can't just plug in, you know, oh, let's say 60% of the Bitcoin network all in one go and expect not to melt transformers down. I, I'm not worried about the physical infrastructure attack. 
for those reasons and a whole lot more. So you put your mind at rest. The real attack is social. The real attack, the real war that's going to be waged is already being waged. And it's in the minds of people that they created out of the COVID-19 journey that they're all believing that, oh my God, it, it, it use, Bitcoin uses so much electricity and they're buying it hook, line and sinker because they were programmed to be programmed. That's where the battle is. Don't worry about the infrastructure. The infrastructure is going to be just fine. And so is NYDIG, at least I think. Uh, under new management, NYDIG bets another $720 million on Bitcoin. Andrew Asmikov's got it for, what am I trying to do here? Why, that, why, that, why does that say Twitter? It shouldn't say Twitter. Oh, well, whatever. I'm sorry to confusing you. This is from decrypt.co. NYDIG. New York Digital Investment Group has raised $720 million for its institutional Bitcoin fund as revealed in an SEC filing published last week. A total of 59 unnamed investors have contributed to NYDIG's Bitcoin fund. The filing doesn't specify when the firm is planning to complete the purchase, however. The document further states that the United States Securities and Exchange Commission has not necessarily reviewed the information in this filing and has not determined if it is accurate and complete. One of the leading institutional players in the crypto space, NYDIG launched its Bitcoin fund in 2018, originally dubbed the Institutional Digital Asset Fund, raising $190 million in June of 2020. In October that same year, NYDIG's parent company, Stone Ridge, purchased 10,000 Bitcoin, worth $115 million at the time, as part of its Treasury Reserve strategy, choosing its own subsidiary as custody provider. That made NYDIG one of the industry's biggest crypto custodians, holding over $1 billion in digital assets on behalf of its customers. The firm raised $1 billion last December at a valuation of more than $7 billion in a round led by Westcap with participation from Morgan Stanley, Mass Mutual, and others. In an interesting twist of events, NYDIG's latest SEC filing was followed by the Monday's announcement of CEO Robert Gutman and President Yan Zhao leaving the roles to continue working to, at Stone Ridge. Per the release, Tejas Shah is the new CEO of NYDIG, while Nate Conrad is the new president. Shaw and Conrad will focus on accelerating investments in NYDIG's Bitcoin mining franchise serving North American miners and furthering institutional adoption through the Lightning Network, Bitcoin's Layer 2 scaling solution. Quote, when markets crumble, character emerges. A flight to quality from the most risk-aware institutional investors has relentlessly driven Bitcoin and revenue to NYDIG in the last 12 months, end quote. Ross Stevens, founder and executive chairman of NYDIG, said in a statement. He added that even during the height of the crypto frenzy in Q2 2021, our risk management dis uh, discipline kept us entirely away from DeFi, centralized lending platforms, and the uncollateralized lending market. Nidig further said the firm's balance sheet is now the strongest it's ever been with its Bitcoin balance hitting an all-time high in the third quarter, quote, up almost 100% year over year, while revenue is up 130% through the second quarter and set to increase in the third quarter. I, I skated over it, so I'm going to go back to it because this is critical to understand. Ross Stevens founder and chair, executive chairman of NYDIG said in a statement, 
even during the height of the crypto frenzy in the second quarter of 2021, our risk management discipline kept us entirely away from DeFi, centralized lending platforms, and uncollateralized lending markets, which is why they're as strong as ever, because they're disciplined Bitcoiners. Now, okay, I get a little nervous when Nidig says we got another $720 million, we're going to buy all Bitcoin because that reminds me of Du Quan and the LFG, the Luna Foundation Guard. And they were buying like $1.3 billion worth of Bitcoin. And you saw what happened, but they weren't actual Bitcoiners. They over leveraged themselves eight ways from Sunday and took down 50 companies with them at least. And it's probably the carnage is still unfurling. It just is. And we'll see that here in a second with a grayscale Bitcoin trust terminates material agreements with Genesis Zayun Sun Cointelegraph.com. According to a recent filing with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust has terminated not one but two agreements with cryptocurrency broker Genesis. First, Genesis will no longer assist Grayscale in the distribution and marketing of the latter's shares. Second, from October 3rd onwards, Genesis will no longer be an authorized participant of the trust, but will continue to serve as a liquidity provider for Grayscale. The two agreements previously came into effect in 2019. The aforementioned responsibilities have since transferred to Grayscale Securities LLC, a wholly owned subsidiary of Grayscale Investments LLC, and an affiliate of Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. In the past, Genesis helped Grayscale market the trust on social media and transfer digital assets to create trust shares. However, it appears that Genesis may have fallen on tough times as part of the ongoing crypto winter. Last week, Genesis director Matthew Balanswig announced that he was stepping down and moving into an advisory role. In August, Genesis CEO Michael Morrow also resigned, whereas the firm cut its workforce by 20% to reduce costs. Previously, Morrow confirmed that Genesis's funds were exposed to defunct cryptocurrency hedge fund. Here it is, Three Arrows Capital. <laughs> Genesis's parent company, Digital Currency Group, was forced to intervene and helped plug some of the losses. You mean gaping holes. Grayscale attempted this year to convert its Bitcoin trust to an exchange-traded fund from being traded on the over-the-counter markets. However, its application was denied by the SEC because the proposal failed to demonstrate how it was designed to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices. In response, Grayscale CEO Michael Schottenschein filed a lawsuit against the SEC, citing failing to apply consistent treatment to similar investment vehicles when it rejected the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust listing application. In part, due to perceived litigation risks, GBTC shares have consistently traded below the value of Bitcoin spot price since 2021, with the discount reaching 35%, a new all-time high as of this publication. Wow. Okay, so, you know, Nidig did the right thing. Genesis did not. They, this, this is why Bitcoin. And on a, I, I, I exhibit the same discipline in my personal Bitcoin thoughts that Nidig do, does and did do 
on the institutional level. I don't get into NFTs. I don't have a need for DeFi. I don't want a reason to have a need for DeFi. And the whole unleveraged loan marketing or, or over leveraged loan marketing bullshit caught everybody. Everybody got scammed. Everybody got fucking scammed. I didn't get scammed because I took part in none of it and neither did Nidig. But Genesis did. And yeah, Grayscale uh, uh, said, bye. Now, that's what you get. Be a solid Bitcoiner and you won't have these problems. There are other problems though. MasterCard launches a new crypto fraud protection tool. This is probably just a reason to surveil your transactions. Cointelegraph, Savannah Fortis. The financial service provider, MasterCard, launched a new crypto service related to risk management on October the 3rd. MasterCard's new service, Crypto Secure, is aimed to help banks find and prevent fraud on crypto merchant platforms. Yay, Crypto Secure combines the usage of artificial intelligence, blockchain data, and public records of crypto transactions, along with other sources to determine crime-related risks of crypto exchanges within the MasterCard network. First, they laugh at you. <clears throat> MasterCard already has a similar service with fiat currency transactions available to banks. The president of cyber and intelligence business for MasterCard, Ajay Bala, yeah, he's a hell of a Bala, said this development helps its partners stay compliant with local regulations when fighting fraud in the crypto space, quote. The idea is that the kind of trust we provide for digital commerce transactions, we want to be able to provide the same kind of trust to digital asset transactions for consumers, banks, and merchants, end quote. Banks and other MasterCard issuers that use Crypto Secure will see color-coded risk ratings of crypto merchants, which represent the risk of suspicious or fraudulent activity connected to said merchant. Crypto Secure is run by CypherTrace, a California-based startup for blockchain security that was acquired by MasterCard the previous year. While the tool doesn't make judgments for banks, it provides another level of advisory on crypto transactions. MasterCard currently has around 2,400 crypto exchanges within its network. Crypto payments are becoming more mainstream thanks to centralized payment processors like Visa and MasterCard. Last year, Visa reported over $1 billion in crypto spending, while MasterCard has recently created a new crypto payments option in countries such as Argentina and Indonesia. However, as crypto continues to enter the public eye, so does any fraud and crime related to the industry. According to chain analysis data, 2021 marked a new all-time high in crypto crime with fraudulent wallet addresses receiving $14 billion. In Australia in 2022, investors lost $242 million to investment in crypto-related scams, while some executives have recently related uh, crypto to Ponzi schemes. Others are calling on social media giants to be aware of crypto scams linked to their platforms. Yeah, this is so, yeah, you know, it, this is bad. Okay, it's good on one level, but you know it's going to be used for really bad shit. I mean, we... Me and you and the fence post know what actual fraud is. But I guarantee you that MasterCard will say, we're going to extend what fraud means because we want to protect you, our customers. Oh, bullshit. No, you don't. You don't care. That's what's going to happen. This is a surveillance tool. That's all it is. However, I'm not saying there's not fraud in crypto because what do I say, boys and girls? 99.95% of this space is 100% scam. Crypto 
is, is in fact a scam. Only Bitcoin matters. What else do we have? There's a long line of bidders expected for crypto lender as, or lender Celsius's assets. Uh, Sam Bankman Fried from FTX is probably the most likely potential guy to um, uh, make the make the bid. And what else is going on? Because we are coming to the end of the show. Oh, is payment giant Swift preparing for a blockchain bound future? I don't care. I don't care. And I don't think you should care. If you do care, that's your business. I'm not going to tell you what to think. But dude, I, I couldn't give a shit less about what Swift does. Unless Swift tells me that it's going to go jump off the tallest bridge, then I might applaud. I don't know. I don't care. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. Dad says, jokes. I saw an old man fall into a well today. I guess he couldn't see that well. That was a rough show, ladies and gentlemen. I had to make several cuts. Uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. Whereas normally I have three. I do the, the first bit, then I do the numbers, then I do the last bit. And no, between trucks and shit starting up and my cat in the other room crying in a way that makes me think that she's hurt, but then I go in there and she's just looking at me like I'm an idiot because, you know, I fell for it. I had to, there's several, it's so the show's going to be a little choppy, but if you want to listen to the show, if you want to support the show, podcasting 2.0 is the way to go. Fountain app, my favorite app, and no, they're not sponsors of the show. Come on guys, call up Fountain and tell them to sponsor Bitcoin and to be the first sponsor of Bitcoin and I've been doing this for almost four years. I would like at least a little sponsor, except that I would require that I do live reads and I get to write them which is probably why I don't have any sponsors because that's just, man, you're begging for trouble there. Um, yeah, Fountain App, Podcasting 2.0. You can boost me and send me what you want read on the air unless it's really distasteful and then I probably won't, um, but I'll, I'll take your sats anyway. And you can stream me sats. Somebody's been streaming me 50 sats a minute lately. Dude, I am stoked when I see that shit coming through on Thunderhub. Um, is there anything else that needs to be said here? I don't think so. Uh, except for Marty, uh, Marty Bent. Uh, I know you don't listen to the show or anything, but, uh, Marty, your your the show that you released today with Texas Slim is actually a copy of your show earlier with a guy named Max. Um, yeah, just, just saying, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and... And I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.